Welcome to the Commentary Magazine podcast for Wednesday, September 16th, 2020. We're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the principled and tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, so uh, we are uh, releasing various uh, articles from our October issue online at commentarymagazine.com. Please go take a look. You get a few free reads, then we ask you to subscribe. So I'm going to start with uh, this uh, fact. Uh, yesterday, as we uh, talked about on yesterday's podcast, was the signing of this uh, normalization of relations between Israel, uh, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain uh, on the White House lawn. And uh, to judge by most of the mainstream media coverage as it was going on, uh, the most important issue in this um, uh, profound breakthrough, uh, 21st century breakthrough in the peace process, was that the leaders were not adequately social distancing. Uh, CNN, as they showed the guys on the, you know, as they showed the foreign ministers of the UAE in Bahrain and, and, uh, and, and Prime Minister Netanyahu sort of standing on the portico of the White House, uh, just kept complaining that, um, that they weren't uh, six feet apart with, with masks. Um, and, uh, I just thought maybe you guys would want to, um, reflect. I mean, do they not think we notice how selectively they do this? Do they... Do they have such self-regard that they think they're getting one over on you? No, I think what it means is that they are have a monomaniacal focus on this issue, uh, the masking issue, and that uh, nothing else on the planet matters aside from this fact. Well, but they don't, but, no, but they subordinate it when it's convenient, when the targets are politically... Uh, allied with well, and, their and worse than that they make a kind of positive uh, recognition so so when the, there was that big march uh, here in washington a few weeks ago they made a they made they took great pains to show you know people look everyone's wearing masks they pointed out a random guy who was kind of vaguely aiming a thermometer at people's foreheads as they walked miles away from him and like so they were there was all this theater this kind of mask and, and temperature taking theater that they were positively contrasting to every other republican event that might be going on, never following up later in the evening when there were people dancing around, no masks, you know, sweating. It, they, there's no actual, so, so it's not bad enough that they just ignore what people are doing when they're protesting. It's now they proactively point out how responsible they are as citizens, even though, you know, an hour after they take that picture, everybody's got their mask off and they're packed in like sardines. I mean, but it's, it's so plainly obvious that what they're trying to do here is avoid covering what they're covering. Like, right. in order to do so, you would have to extend credit to the Trump administration for this spectacular diplomatic breakthrough. Uh, no one wants to do that. So you, you do the masking thing as, as a cover, yeah. but if you're covering a black lives matter protest, the content is what's most important. And, you know, maybe they're a little lax with public health, but yes, remember the Sturgis rally, which is going to kill 250,000 people any minute. No, it already now. has killed. Yes. It's, it's, it's infected 2 billion people and has murdered 600 million. As far as I can tell, uh, the Sturgis rally. So um, I'd also like to point out uh, some of the coverage uh, in particular, I would like to point out Jeffrey Goldberg in the Atlantic, the editor in chief 
of the Atlantic, uh, whom uh, alert listeners uh, who alert, will remember um, was the guy who threw Kevin Williamson uh, uh, to the wolves and allowed himself to be castrated by his own staff and his boss and let it happen in public. Uh, and of course, Jeff Goldberg is uh, also famous for his coverage of um, Obama's wonderful Middle East policies, uh, which he uh, always could never find a bad words to say about, uh, though he is nominally, you know, sort of like a hardened realist and under, you know, like a somebody who doesn't kowtow to anti-Israel forces or to, you know. So uh, he has a piece about uh, about the, uh, as they're called, the Abraham Accords, uh, which is, you know, what the name that has been given to this since, of course, Abraham, you know, uh, was the father both of uh, Islam and, and Judaism. Uh, so he has a piece called Kui Bono, right? Who benefits? And, and he, it's winners and losers. Winners and losers. So the winners, the White House aides who named this agreement, the Abraham Accords, a genius marketing move, though I would have preferred the Treaty of Ghent. <laughs> Isn't that, that's just so puckish and hilarious. And then the authoritarian leaders or authoritarian curious leaders of four countries, meaning uh, Bin Zayed, the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Bibi Netanyahu and Donald Trump. So we have two autocrats, two elected presidents uh, of of democratic countries, and see, they're all the same. They're all the Wait, same because, I uh, yeah. I'm sorry, I just I don't get the Treaty of Ghent joke. Uh, well, what is the joke there? I mean, this is very similar to the treaty between the United States and Great Britain, which established the longest lived, uh, most effective no, 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 alliance no, no, no. in yes. um, in human history. No, what he what he what he means is uh, I have no sense of humor and I'm trying to make a joke, just so I, I can make this clear. In other words, the Treaty of Ghent, of course, is you know a famous long lived treaty, so they should have named it the treaty to, because they're being so they're being so showoffy by calling it the Abraham Accords. And this is how a person who doesn't know how to make a joke and has no sense of humor tries to make a a, a joke. Well, and because he should try not to make a joke because he has no sense of humor and is uh, just being snarky, embarrassingly, uh, lamely, and kind of humiliatingly, as I, I would say. And can I just say, it's, it's it's similar to the weird statements that a lot of correspondents who revealed their lack of uh, any sort of uh, history of Middle East policymaking uh, revealed when they went on Twitter and said, I didn't know Bahrain was at war with Israel. What's going on here? What's Why do they need a treaty? I mean, it was obviously as if to, to downplay how important this was was to sort of say, oh, well, they weren't really fighting. It was not that big a deal. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the other winners, the makers of the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, uh, the ambassadors and the Israel, the losers, the Iranians, the Palestinians, and the, uh, the Iranians and the Palestinians. So, um, so and, and he literally uses this sentence, okay? In this new deal, the Israel gets something for nothing. Relations with two more Arab states without so much as a settlement freeze. How unfair. Can you believe it? This is such a jip. Israel didn't have to even do a settlement freeze to get a treaty. Well, you know why it didn't have to get a settlement, didn't have to do a settlement freeze? Because its negotiator, the negotiators on the other side, didn't care about the goddamn settlement freeze. That's why. Because the settlement freeze 
is an American delusional fantasy of something that you can sort of get from Israel, right? Like you can get them to freeze the settlements in place. You can't get them to dismantle them. You can't get them to give them up, but maybe you could get them to free. And then you can say you're, you're, you got them to say the settlements won't, won't grow. But again, this is what we were talking about yesterday. This is a dogged commitment to old dogmas that under the guise of foreign policy analysis is doing its best to avoid performing any foreign policy analysis. Why was that not a stumbling block? Okay, to, so to answer the think, question, I don't think is, that this is this is being in the thrall of old dogmas. I think this is being an asshole. So the piece yeah. ends with: if the so-called Abraham Accords put Iran and its terrorist proxies on the back foot, then good. But if they cause Israel to avoid coming to terms with the reality that its continued control over the lives of millions of Palestinians threatens its democratic nature then both the Palestinian aspiration of nationhood and the Israeli dream of a free and strong democratic haven in the Jewish ancestral homeland could be victims of this agreement. Because Israel does not unilaterally agree to do things for the Palestinians in pursuit of normalization of relations with nations that no longer have any particular interest in promoting the Palestinian cause, then Israel is finished. That is not old dogma. That is assholery. I, I agree, because uh, I have to say a few things here. One is that um, this accord is not just an earth-shaking development in terms of um, global relations in the Middle East. It is a crushing blow to people like Jeff Goldberg, who was um, the, the sort of main mouthpiece for um, uh, uh, the Obama foreign policy shop's echo chamber. Um, where, whereby, um, you know, all Obama's failed uh, uh, Middle East um, attempts and, you know, uh, uh, his, his trying to get daylight between U.S. and Israel and trying to bring, uh, rehabilitate Iran, um, all, that, all that terrible policy that was then um, portrayed to uh, American news consumers as, as um, r- rational and and the right way to go and reasonable and pragmatic, um, Goldberg was a huge part of that. Um, story after story, um, framing those terrible policies as pragmatic. This right. the, the, the accord blows all of those people up. Um, Goldberg, by the way, was not part of the echo because the echo chamber was aimed at much lower level people than Goldberg. Goldberg was Obama's. But that didn't stop. But that didn't stop. No, but my point is that Goldberg, Goldberg was fed directly by Obama, which with, with, you know, uh, uh, that Goldberg was Obama's channel to talk about Middle Eastern stuff. And of course, what did he have stars in his eyes? I mean, if you think that Sean Hannity Mm -hmm. is Trump's cat's paw, you never read Jeff Goldberg, you know, and 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 his and his you know slavish hero worship of Obama in the Middle East. But if I remember correctly, when the the piece in the New York Times came out, um, in which Ben Rhodes described this uh, echo chamber of journalists who they could who the Obama administration could retail Obama foreign policy through, um, I think Goldberg came out sort of very defensively because he was implicated in this. Well, he was Ben Rhodes said the 27 year old reporters who know literally nothing. That was the quote. Right. Um, many of whom work at the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So it was talking about right. his staffers. Right. If but you I, really genuinely believe that this that the Palestinian issue is a stumbling block to peace in the region, all evidence not, the, to the contrary notwithstanding, then this accord, which everybody seems to believe, and I think it, with some justification, which is a prelude to a thaw in relations with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, um, a, a, an official thaw, um, you're removing the what historically the chief sponsor of violence in that part of the world. They are suing for peace. And that should be, if you really do buy that, that should be something that you would celebrate because that is uh, the the conditions that will lead to the neutralization of this issue you think is the most profound issue in the region. No, it's not that hard. It's not that hard, okay? You can hate Trump. You can say that the Trump administration is a disaster. You can vote against Trump in 20... You You can advocate for the end of the Trump administration and say this is good. It's really not hard. Like one thing can be good and everything can be bad. Yesterday I mentioned that the Carter administration, which I consider an unmitigated disaster, was really good on deregulatory issues. It's not that hard. This is the nature of the intellectual trap that we have all been led down by negative partisanship, everybody on all sides. Trump can do one good thing. Trump can even do one great thing it, that wouldn't necessarily, depending on who you are, outweigh the 75 things you think that he does are terrible. But this utter inability even to open the mouth to say yesterday was a great day for the world. Yesterday was a day in which a long-term American foreign policy goal was achieved. Yesterday was a day in which uh, the 21st century uh, finally saw material progress in a diplomatic, political, geopolitical situation that will only redound to the benefit of, you know, uh, of those who uh, uh, fear nuclear proliferation, uh, fear uh, uh, terrorism, and support democracy. It's not that hard to do one day. He gets one day. Trump gets one lousy day, and then you can hate him tomorrow. But no, you can't. You can't. I mean, it's I don't even think you don't even you don't even have to give him one day because actually the performance he turned in uh, in the evening in the town hall was kind of terrible. You can give him this one victory. They can give him the morning and give him the signing. Yeah. You can give him all of that. And then you can tear back into him in the evening, which actually we all did. <laughs> I mean, right. It, so, no, but I, all, all I'm saying is that it, it's this uh, this world of um conventional liberal opinion uh, that uh, loves to talk about the inability of the right to view the world as it is rather than the world as they wish it to be, that is looking at the world as it is changing for the better before their eyes And because that conflicts with a very narrow political goal, that, by the way, look, Jimmy Carter signed the the Camp David Accords. He made many commercials in 1980 about how he was a great peacemaker, and he lost by 10 points to Reagan. That Trump did this in September is likely to have no political impact whatsoever in November. Therefore, it's a gimme. You can say it was good. You can say it was fine. Nobody is stopping you except your own narrow, slavish dedication 
to a world in which you know that your liberal readers and your liberal followers and your millennial, post-millennial staffers are going to say that you are making it an unsafe space for them if you say that Trump had a successful day in the Middle East. They're going to they're gonna, uh, they're gonna say it's not safe. They don't feel safe now working for Jeff Goldberg because he said something nice about Trump. Okay, so... If again, back to this this idea now, if you believe that the Palestinian issue is really the chief obstacle to peace in the region, then Republicans now are responsible for removing from the battlefield, as it were, the two chief sponsors of that uh, of that in, intifada and that violence, uh, Saudi Arabia and its allies and Saddam Hussein's Iraq. And you now would have to give credit to two Republican presidents, which is anathema for their foreign policy, because it has, it has achieved what you have said is the most important thing in the region. They did it, but you don't, but that's where, that's where, that's where all you have to say, I'm making a very, very, I'm, I am lowering the bar as low as you can make it, which is September 15th, the day that the Abraham Accords were signed on the White House lawn was an unambiguously good day for America and for the world. And Donald Trump gets some credit for that. Tom Friedman was able to say it in the New York Times. I mean, it's an incredibly dumb column that Tom Friedman wrote. It's embarrassingly dumb. But he did say, you got to give Trump credit. It's not that hard. But Jeff Goldberg is running an enterprise with Mrs. Jobs's billions of dollars and a staff that can't possibly ever have published anything that it might disagree with. And so and his own history of craven buckling to not only them, but to anything, any word that was whispered in his ear by Barack Obama, one of the great political fail, one of the great Middle East uh, diplomatic uh, failed presidents in American history. And so he just can't even begin to bring himself to say anything that's not sneering and snarky and humorless and stupid and embarrassing. You know, and I, I hope w- he chokes on it. I wonder if this is in part that this has been going on for, for the last several years, but you know, the Obama legacy has come under attack from its left flank from almost the moment he left office, right? I mean, there has been, and and there is this contingent of kind of elite journalists, you know, kind of the comfortable elite journalistic establishment, which absolutely adored Barack Obama and everything he represented and everything he did that has, you know, their rear guard action didn't happen you know, 10 years later or when the library was built or any, usually there's a, there's a little bit of a gap, you know, after someone leaves office, there are a lot of people in that coalition who never did like Barack Obama and felt he was, you know, and, and that is the wing that is now ascendant and it, it's, it's rising in the party it probably will not be ascendant in this election, but it will be in the future if trends continue. And I do find that there are more and more of those, a more combative tone among that elite group of journalists who always liked Obama and really want to maintain his place in the narrative of liberal ascendance. Um, but there, it, it, the attacks don't really come from the right on that score. It, it, it's, you know, the calls coming from within I mean, the House. For most of them, the policy is just immaterial. It's just the liberal right. soul craves a god. Right. And therefore, <laughs> Barack Obama fill, filled that void and, and Kamala Harris will fill it now. And there will be somebody else down the line. But, you know, the policy is, is secondary not, to the to the atmosphere created. But but not on the foreign policy stuff. There has been a, 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 a group within the Obama sort of fan club 
um, that is obsessed with um, the Iran deal and uh, Obama's um, taking on Israel, um, uh, the, all the sort of uh, Ben Rhodes acolytes who've been on Twitter, who have been in a defensive crouch ever since Trump started chipping away at the Iran deal. Um, and the, and, and they have, and they've lost that echo chamber. And the second that, um, there was even the hint of, of what would become the Abraham Accords, they started poo-pooing it, downplaying it, objecting to it, um, all very embarrassingly. And obviously they, they have no power to sway anything at this point. So this is, this is sheer, this is a sheer tantrum from them. Right. Uh, let me uh, let me talk to you guys about our sponsor today, Donors Trust. Okay, so follow this. John and Jane have college-age children, and it wasn't long before the couple discovered how different the world looked when viewed through this new college lens. Since then, they've been supporting Classroom and other foundational programs that teach the principles of economic liberty, rule of law, and free expression. They could have written personal checks to accomplish their goals, but instead they opened a donor-advised fund at Donors Trust. At Donors Trust, they knew they would spend less time on administration and more time having an impact. A donor-advised fund is like a charitable savings account where you can manage your giving in a smart, tax-advantaged, and private way. Donors Trust is unique, working with donors at all levels who share a commitment to the freedoms and principles that strengthen America. Donors Trust's philanthropic advisors can help you sharpen your giving, discover new groups, and define your charitable legacy. So join the community of liberty-minded donors at Donors Trust. To see how a donor-advised fund could benefit your giving, go to donorstrust.org slash commentary for our six reasons to use a donor-advised fund. That's donorstrust.org slash commentary. Okay, so last night, as Christine alluded to, the president appeared uh, for an hour and a half long uh, town hall in Pennsylvania, moderated by George Stephanopoulos on ABC, uh, which is interesting because that wouldn't that be a little like, uh, you know, Joe Biden appearing uh, with, I don't know, Dana Perino uh, uh, at a town hall moderated by Dana Perino or by Ari Fleischer or something. Anyway, fine. So he's on with George Stephanopoulos. He agreed. He did it with supposedly uh, uncommitted uh, voters, uh, by which I mean, I think they're not committed between voting for Biden and voting for Stalin. That's what I think is actually what's going on in the uncommitted quality, since uh, not a single question was asked that w- might suggest that any of those voters will actually vote for Trump. They're just not committed to voting for Biden yet because they're they're too far left for, for Biden. Um, and Biden was invited to a t- to participate in this town hall and declined. Right. That right. Be or, or another or another one. He's doing one tomorrow right. night. His on own, with some probably kind of very stuff. committed pre-screened. Yeah. Questioners yes. of uncommitted yes. yes. Well, these were pre-screened questioners too, and remarkably enough, uh, they but were pre-screened, pre-screened questioners <laughs> whose questions were right. all remarkably uh, ideologically uh, similar, um, and without any uh, without any sense of uh, of uh, let us say uh, heterodox <laughs> political views. Uh, but okay, fine. So what? So so this is all a question of how Trump or how anyone can sort of manage and handle questions, uh, unanticipated questions, and how they're going to do it. Uh, Christine uh, and Abe, I think, have a real uh, difference of opinion here about how it went. Uh, Christine? 
I'll just say I think he um, he doesn't acquit himself well in these situations because he, while he's answering questions, he starts to believe himself to be making an epic statement that is really important and he gets off topic and he, he, you can literally see the gears grinding in his head as, as he, as he tries to reach for the, the um, exceptional word he's going to use to describe something basic that all presidents should be able to do. That's how I'll put it. So I was not impressed. I was not impressed. I did laugh at the, my favorite question was the uncommitted you know, self-identified young socialist. That was my sort of my favorite moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Abe. Yeah. I, look, I don't, I don't think he did extraordinarily well, but I think he did just fine, maybe even better than just fine. And this, it wasn't like um, when, uh, you know, the, the Chris Wallace interview from a few months back, unmitigated disaster. Um, uh, the, there was a, the Axios interview, just terrible across the board. Um, I think he, I think he came across, I think, I think he benefits from these things generally, um, or at least he did last night, because whatever he is in person, um, when you actually hear him speak at length in these things where he is, he is, um, he brags, he doesn't, he doesn't have a, a handle on, uh, the facts. He rambles. This is all true, but whatever he is, he is not as bad. No one could be as bad as the comprehensive monster that he is portrayed as um, in his absence by the media. So if he if he is human enough, which I think he was last night, by the way, uh, particularly when he spoke in response to um, that woman who lost her mother and was concerned about the future of uh, citizenship and and um, COVID. Um, he is m- more human, somewhat more in control of the facts, um, and um, less um, uh, uh, sort of um, unhinged than he is painted to be the other 22 hours of the day. Yeah, I don't know, man. Um, <laughs> being human is the lowest possible bar to clear. But that's where they've we said it. All actually do it. That's where um, they've said it. And insofar as that means you're fallible, boy, did he achieve that one. Uh, I I didn't watch it last night. I watched it this morning. Um, and I just sort of checked in on Twitter like for two minutes just to see what it was like. But I don't want to be. You know, I don't want my opinion of these things to be influenced by that. So I, I watch it later, and uh, I. I I lost count of the amount of times that I involuntarily thrust my hand, my hands into my face over what he was saying, which is just a rapid fire stream of consciousness. Tell the audience whatever they want to hear, even if it's an outright falsehood, pure mendacity contradicts yourself in the next sentence. It happened too many times to count. And I mean, if that if we really if anybody really cares, if we're not in a post-truth society, you know, some of us actually do want to hear our public elected officials and especially the president say things that are verifiable independently. Um, There were too many opportunities for fact checkers to go after him on the veracity of his comments. I mean, here's the weird part about this, which is that he says, I didn't downplay the virus. I didn't, I I never said I downplayed downplayed it in terms of, in fact, I upplayed it. But of course he said he downplayed the virus. He said Mm -hmm. it on tape. We heard it uh, to Bob Woodward. We didn't so, mislead the public. No, no, but we did. But no, but uh, here's but here's what's striking, which is we know he said it. He knows he said it. 
there's tape of him saying it. Then he says he didn't say it. So why does he say it when we know he said it? And I think I can see as he was doing it what he was about, which is that he was moving to shift the narrative, which is to say he didn't downplay the virus, he upplayed the virus, but he wanted to cheerlead for the country and not panic everybody. So he said things not to panic everybody while he was instituting policies uh, that were fantastic and that saved, according to him, either almost 2 million or almost 3 million lives. Now, I don't know whether this is a smart thing to do, but I will say that him saying we locked down, we, you know, we did the lockdown of China, and then we did the lockdown uh, from Europe, and then we locked the country down, and uh, we saved 2 million people. Now, that 2 million people number is, I, I don't want to put this in ideological, I just because it's too, it's that, um, what was it, Oxford? Who was it who said, if we don't do X, Y, and Z, 2 million people are going to die? There was some, was it the I mean, Oxford it the the Imperial Academy, Academy or something like the, that? Yeah. The Royal Academy, whatever. The Royal Academy, right. But if we did nothing, if no mitigating if we did nothing, at all. right. Okay. Right. So now I think that was globally. I don't think that was necessarily the United States. But anyway, so that wasn't him. That wasn't his. Though that was sort of like the liberals said, if you don't do anything, two million people will die. So he did something. And now the number is, you know, 195,000. And that's terrible. It's heartbreaking. It's terrible. But let's face it, he saved a million eight from death, according to them, according to the propaganda that they were, uh, that they were throwing around in February and March. So why can't he take advantage of that number and say, you see the number that it is now? I mean, I was looking at numbers you can't even imagine. I've saved, I, my lockdown from China saved hundreds of thousands of people from death. Now, I don't know that that's going to work. I kind of doubt it. But it's not an inarguable point because those people are still using the estimates that these organizations have been bandying about. We're still, we're now talking about 400, 500,000 people dead in the United States by Christmas or something based on that um, University of Washington survey that I thought had been kind of disproven. But no, what they put it out and everybody reports on it. I agree. And not only that, um, people who continue to be in favor of um, various stringent lockdowns, they cite new studies that come out every week saying if this lockdown didn't happen, uh, 30,000 more people would have died. Uh, if this lockdown didn't happen, 50,000 more people would have died. Um, they get decided all the time. Similar figures. So yeah. so why can't he? Well, whether, he can't. whether it's true. Now, all I'm, saying, all I'm saying is that he seems to be honing in on a message that I think he is going to deliver in the debates, which is you all say that I've handled this terribly. I've actually handled it great. According to this estimate, 2 million people were going to die 
from this virus if we did nothing. I did this and this and this, and 180,000 people have died, which is way too many, and it's really horrible, and it's terrible, and one death is one death too many. But let's let's face it. You're all attacking me. This is what I see. I see that I saved. I you know that my actions saved millions of people from death. But see, this is where it is such a missed opportunity and a different kind of personality with someone with a different character could actually spin that message much more effectively. He could start by saying, "I did what what we did when H1N1 hit, and the country was facing you know a pandemic that thankfully wasn't as as brutal." But you know what we found out, our experience of this is that we have a lot of systemic failures in the system, like how the system works, how we reach out to people, how we respond to pandemics is not working. It didn't work back then, and now we definitely have seen this. Here are all the things we're going to change, not some mask theater like Biden and Harris are suggesting, but but real ways the federal government can now reform itself so that the next time something like this happens, here's what we'll do. But he has to make it all personal. And this is where I think he he really does believe himself to have been the savior of all those, you know, people who to most of us are just like kind of figment numbers that have been tossed around. And that is where the personalization weirdly works against him. Because I think the American people want to feel like someone knows how to fix this problem. And I don't think that they're all that confident Biden and Harris can do it. But Biden and Harris seem nominally more competent at fixing it than perhaps Trump does. I think basically basically what he's saying is that he saved or replaced 1.8 million lives. (laughs) Uh I mean, that's basically, if you, if you, you know, the save or replace doctrine, which was the Obama, you know, how you claim results from something that that isn't me- that aren't measurable. Right. I saved a million jobs with my with this policy. Well, that's not you can't prove that. So I saved or replaced. You know, I mean, that that's, you know, so again, I, I, I think it's not going to work. And I, I but this is the weird question. Is it cynical? Christine, you're saying it's actually not cynical that he spins himself up into this and he has now come to believe that he has saved millions of people's lives. Yeah, I, I don't think he's doing this as some sort of cynical political ploy. I think he, I mean, we all, we, you got to know that about Trump. People, he drinks his own Kool-Aid. He manufactures the Kool-Aid, then drinks it and then spouts it sure. back up at you. I mean, it's not, it's very, the easy explanation is the correct one in this case. Yeah, it's not just the pandemic either. Uh, he, he, the guy's not a political philosopher, so I don't expect him to really dive deep into the issues. And he's talking about his own record, and that's that's the the prime directive here. However, when it comes to the, he's asked a lot about the racial tension and race relations. And one of the questioners um, asked him, you know, you you said that you want to make America great again. When has this country ever been great for Black Americans? And then he goes off onto how, you know, well, we have this record and housing is better and jobs are better. And and then the guy says, well, there was oh, there's also ex- existing uh, income inequality. And and George Stephanopoulos backs up that premise. And so then he accepts the premise and is like, yeah, the income inequality is bad. I've always said income inequality is terrible. And so he ends up undermining his own message. Um, the answer to that one is that racial progress in this country is predicated on the foundational enlightenment notions that were baked into the founding documents. And are the reason why America is great is because racial tolerance is main is, is a function of America's founding principles. And we are striving towards that and making progress. It's a, it's, it's a fight that will never end. But the reason why we can make progress at all is because of the greatness of this country from its founding. Um, that's the answer that a president should be able to give, but he can't give it. He's well, my, can we, can we talk about my my favorite moment, which is, I mean, 
which was uh, when he praised Winston Churchill for standing on top of a building during the <laughs> during the Blitz I think and delivering a speech people. standing on top of a building. Churchill never stood on top of a building <laughs> giving a speech. I mean, you know, so it's like, was he thinking of of, of George W. Bush standing in the the, the rubble of, of the freedom, you know, of, of, of the World Trade Center? Was he thinking of Yeltsin jumping Same. on the tank? I, I can't. What Same. the Everything hell was fine. that? If he, I don't, he's never heard a Churchill speech from World War II ever because at no point did Churchill say anything other than this is going to be awful. Yeah. And, and you're going to have to ignore the worst circumstances no, I, in humanity. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm literally, I've got here the Dunkirk, the speech he gave after uh, Dunkirk. Um, and, you know, there, here the, the, the paragraph that precedes him saying, you know, this was kind of a, a, a triumph, was him saying, our losses in material are enormous. We have lo- perhaps lost one third of the men we lost in the opening days of the Battle of 21st March 1918, but we have lost nearly as many guns. You know, we don't have men, we don't have guns, death toll, but it wasn't as bad as it would, you know, and this is not, this is, uh, you know, we will fight on the beaches, as we know, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender, and even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, that our empire beyond the seas would carry on the struggle, you know, I mean, he wasn't standing on top of a building, where, what? But this is why. What the hell, honestly? But this is what. Why, the, what the hell? But I Go here's ahead, why Abe. I say, in spite of this, he did fine. Okay. Because Abe with the what the hell 2020 side. His, <laughs> his historical illiteracy is baked in to everything everyone knows about him. His dishonesty is baked in. Um, that's all there already. What he did manage to, to get out last night was in the broad strokes. If you if you agree with him or if you don't, he said, look, before we were hit by the China virus, um, African-Americans had it better than they've ever had it in this country under my administration. I did, uh, you know, uh, lockdowns and I did block travel from China Um uh, and, you know, whatever, all his broad points he got out, all the rest, we already know. No, there's no one that would be shocked to hear that he he's, you know, making up uh, uh, Churchill quotes. But there were there will be people that would be more surprised to hear that he has a defense for some of the things he's done, period. Fair enough. I think that honestly, I think Abe's got a strong point here that um, the fact that he didn't uh, wilt or wither under the under the questioning the way he did under Jonathan Swan's or or Chris Wallace's questioning um, meant that he had a a, a better a better time of it. Um, and I think his demeanor for him yeah. was vastly more uh, pleasant uh, than I think you know people are are used to. Um, But it gets back to the same question, which is who, who's on the fence or who is, you know, like not going to sit it out is going to walk. First of all, who knows who watched it, but who's going to 
vote for him who wasn't going to vote for him as a result of this? Because did he provide his supporters and his followers with uh, information that they can use when they are, you know, having arguments uh, around the dinner table with, uh, you know, with people who hate Trump? Yes. But they're all going to vote for him. So, uh, you know, is that helpful? Yes. Well, he also, by the way, just to add this, he also, he went strong on the law and order stuff. I mean, he, he talked about how you have to back the police. Um, entirely how the, the 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 police are just great but the police are not being allowed to do their job and there are a uh, few you know uh, uh, bad apples there are a few chokers in every and in, in every field but um, generally speaking you have to side with the police and that it's been the local democratic governance that hasn't allowed the police to do what they need to do and that if they would invite the federal the uh, the national guard in we would be able to stop it in half an hour there are people out there, of course, who hate all that, um, but there are a great number of people who who need to hear all that said. And he did say that, and no one on the other side will say it. I wish he'd highlighted. I mean, the interesting story out of Lancaster, where they had some unrest this weekend, is the fact that the rioters, the people who were arrested and charged with you know rioting, looting, whatever uh, range of offenses, their bail is being set very high by the local judge. Um, in in an effort, I think, to test a theory about whether that is going to have a prohibitive effect on future rioters in a way that, you know, we know that it's been catch and release and, you know, in other parts of the country. That has been interesting. I mean, the bail for one of the uh, charged uh, people, I think, is set at a million dollars. So that will be, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, that's actually an effort to try something different in the case of all this civil unrest that's occurred across the country. This is the first area, as far as I know, that set bail that high for these sorts of offenses. I just, I mean, he could have brought up some of the other ways in which the country is trying to react to that sort of unrest. So at the same time, uh, obviously, Joe Biden is also out uh, uh, doing campaign stuff. And um, something interesting is going on there, too, which is there, uh, there is uh, evident uh, open concern that Biden is underperforming with uh, Hispanics. And uh, and so wow, Biden, what gave it away? Hugh <laughs> Despacito. Was it when he played Despacito from the podium? It was like, this is the best thing ever. And, and got Ricky Martin out to say Puerto Ricans really need to support this guy. I mean, mm-hmm. Bill Nelson has his finger on the pulse, man. Well, we talked about this yesterday and yeah, it's shocking but, the extent to which Bill Nelson can make stuff and something happen in this campaign. Okay, so let's let's talk about this because, you know, uh, everyone says that Biden, you know, people who are skeptical of Biden's uh, political abilities or his, you know, his cognitive faculties or whatever, maybe it's not him at all. But the campaign is adjusting to a perceived weakness. Now, it looks silly to us that he played Despacito, but I don't know that it's silly. I mean, who knows if it's silly or not, if he if he actually does some constituent service and goes around talking to people in Florida of Hispanic descent, particularly people who should be very solidly in the democratic coalition who can come out and vote for him in the Puerto Rican community. This is the thing that you wonder about Trump with, which is if he's got perceived weaknesses in certain areas and those weaknesses aren't, you know, African-American vote. It's that his own, that the white, the the non-voting white working class needs to come out and vote for him or whatever. He doesn't really do much 
to talk to them. He's still just talking to the people he knows who but whose buttons are pushed by Trumpian rhetoric. So but I, this, but this is, is the most condescending effort to appeal to. Hispanic and Puerto Rican voters in particular that I can possibly imagine. Like uh, Joe Biden can, can have a, a boom box playing Sirius XM's Pitbull channel 24 hours a day. It's not going to attract a single Hispanic. I totally disagree with you. I completely disagree with you on this. If he makes all, a lot of politicians, George W. Bush used to say this, you go around and say, I'm asking for your vote. I would like you to vote for me. Please vote for me. That has a very big effect. Going around and just saying, I like you, won't you vote for me, is meaningful, particularly to minorities. I am paying attention to you. Well, I mean, there might uh, there might not be a lot of time for that, but that isn't that sort of the point and why perhaps even non-political uh, uh, junkies like us might notice it as being... I, I agree with Noah that there is a sort of whiff of desperation. I mean, the idea that this late in the game, you know, it's he can do this to Hispanic voters and they're like, oh, you had me at Despacito. I mean, I feel like there's a, the lack of enthusiasm isn't necessarily going to be resolved by the signaling alone in this particular election cycle. I could be wrong, but I just, I found it incredibly pandering and condescending, to be honest. But I'm not a Puerto Rican yeah. voter, so. <laughs> pandering is a successful political strategy. Is all yes, but is it for Biden? Like, Sometimes it, all you can do is pander because you don't, all you can do is pander. Um, and he isn't doing um, a lot of retail politics. But there's there's got to be a limit on it. Pandering is not a successful strategy. Pandering totally. is a political strategy. Pandering is a political is a successful political strategy only insofar as we're counting the people who were elected by pandering. One of the most pandering politicians in recent memory was Hillary Clinton, who did everything she possibly could to ingratiate herself with the demographic group of the moment, up to and including subordinating the rule of law to whatever their demands were at the particular moment. Didn't work out for her. We can go through the you know the litany of, Sorry, of history of lost politicians. A good panderer doesn't say that you know half the country you know twenty five percent of the country are deplorables. That's not a good panderer. That's but a I bad don't know, But this is but this is good pandering. He literally came out and pressed I, the button. I'm sorry. That's not that's not the pandering I'm talking about. It is. All I'm saying is... It should have danced with Ricky Martin. <laughs> the campaign shifted. Look, I didn't hear what he... I didn't hear his speech. I don't know what he said. I, you know, We'll see what he says over the next couple of days. My point, all... I only brought this up to say that they are making an adjustment to deal with a perceived weakness. And for nearly four years on this podcast, we have been saying Donald Trump needs to shore up those places where he is weak... Because he doesn't didn't doesn't have enough voters to ensure that his he will be reelected, and you know what he has done is solidify the Republican Party behind him by shrinking it somewhat, by by driving out millions of people uh, to vote Democratic in 2018 because they because uh, he threw he sort of went to war with the politicians that were more closely representative of them. Than they were of him, and uh, and so I'm only saying that when you look at Trump and some of these numbers, like there's a number this morning, Washington Post ABC News poll has Biden winning by 16 in Minnesota. Now this could be an outlier, could be a bad poll, but uh, Hillary Clinton only won Minnesota by a point and a half, 
And uh, Minnesota is a is not a you know it's not a tipping point state or anything like that. But if Trump were doing well or were sort of inclined to win re-election, you would think that Minnesota would be pretty close because it echoes Wisconsin. It's very close to Wisconsin and Pennsylvania in some of its makeup, including its the numbers of white working class and of sort of radical cities and very conservative outlying rural areas and all of that. Um, and if he has fallen into behind by double digits in Minnesota, he is in very, that, that is a sign not only of what's going on in Minnesota, but what's going going to happen in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Ohio. I don't, I don't, I, I don't know if you can lump in Pennsylvania and Ohio with Wisconsin and Minnesota. We haven't seen the numbers move in that direction. In fact, we've seen them move in the opposite direction places like Pennsylvania and Florida. Um, right. Well, Florida is not a, Florida is an outlier. Florida is its own. That's not a national wave thing. Florida is a, a, a different, a different story. All I'm saying is that uh, this is a, a mark of how Trump has not done anything to shore up or, you know, that poll number, a, a more reasonable, less unconventional campaign uh, would either pull out of Minnesota because it would reflect what they're doing and they would give up on even trying there, or it would say, well, what is it we're seeing here that we can correct, at least or mitigate the damage, not in this one state, but what this state represents demographically. And I just don't know that they do that, is what I'm saying. Now, maybe Biden's foolish and he looks ridiculous playing Despacito on his iPod and or whatever the hell that thing was that he was, I guess it was an iPhone. Um, he probably still has an iPod, actually, when you think of it, or a Zoom or something like that. Uh, I don't know. I, I, um, so, yeah, you can say he's pandering. I, I, all I remember is that my, my, my grandfather, who was a very uh, middle, upper middle class businessman in, in, in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, was somebody who uh, would vote for – would drag himself across glass to vote for Hubert Humphrey. Why? Because Hubert Humphrey once said hello to him. I mean, it's not – complicated that that is but that is but but okay so now now you've gotten to the the biggest problem here and i get in trouble for saying that vote a lot of voters particularly low information voters are more enthused to vote based on personal contacts and who they saw last literally um and the biden campaign is eschewing personal contacts the pieties of the pandemic have compelled them to abandon that kind of retail politicking in favor of a nationalized message. You can't do micro-targeting based on what their their campaign strategy is, which is a purely nationalized national platforms, national message, and no door knocking, and just you know just direct mail. Um, this is this is not going to work. I don't well, think they're, it's mi- they're, they're micro-targeting on social media. I mean, I'm sure they're micro-targeting on social media the same they're way they're off social media. Everybody does now because it's actually more efficient than door knocking. And, and I am very skeptical. Door knocking, more efficient than door knocking than personal contacts as GOTV? I don't think so. We don't have any uh, well, evidence of that. We don't have uh, – what, what do you mean we don't have any evidence of it? I mean we have a ton of data the that Trump suggests campaign, personal contact is the most effective GOTV that you can possibly do. The Trump we don't campaign, have any data to suggest anything else. The 2016 Trump campaign was run almost – 80 to 90% off of social media and Facebook. It did not privilege 
per you know per uh, you know hand hand to hand uh get out the vote strategies it it used social media as its as its methodology that was that's that was the great innovation of the Trump campaign or you know fall building on 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 Obama in 2012 so i i don't know we'll see uh it could also be misdirection like they're they're not doing it now but they'll do it in 2 weeks or whatever and the other thing that we have to know or look at is as i say we, on November 5th or November 6th we could say oh my god they 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 really screwed up right now it's a little hard to say they're screwing up i mean it's just you know the 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 whatever data we have do not suggest that they're doing this wrong now as i say we could have a this could be a historically blown reading of everything um but of course the pollsters who are trying to measure what's going on in the country are so terrified of getting the white working class numbers wrong that they are chances are they're overestimating rather than underestimating them. they're waiting results to try to uh, you know increase the numbers to make sure that they're not missing uh, a trend or something like that i don't know as you say, i mean it's hard to overcome these deficits they're profound but as you say, you know, polls only measure someone's preference to vote, not whether they're going to vote. Your likely voter model, your screen can measure enthusiasm. It can measure how many times you voted before, but you still have to drag that person out to the polls. Right. Well, we just, you know, th- this is also such uh, an unprecedented situation um, because we, we don't know how many people are, are afraid to go stand on, on a line. I mean, we know a little bit. Because we know that nobody, they open movie theaters all across the country, and nobody went. I mean, we know that there are there are little bits of evidence of, you know, pieces of information that suggest that that people are far more skittish uh, about this than, I mean, than than say Trump believes, right? Because Trump believes he should be walking around saying everything should reopen. Um, but I don't know. Like the, the these these movie theater numbers are so parlously bad that uh, they they really do suggest that the public is still in shell shock and what that would mean about election day. And again, also about Trump's election day. That's the, that's the part of this that makes no sense to me is that, um, you know, Trump wants in-person voting, in-person voting, in-person voting. He needs a large senior turnout. Uh, and, you know, are they are, are 75 year old people like not scared of the virus? I mean, it's one thing to say a 25 year old person really doesn't have that much to be frightened by the virus from, but if you're 75, you got plenty to be frightened from. And so, you know, we all know people who haven't been outside in six months who aren't, who might be inclined not to be particularly, you know, uh, hypochondriacal about this. And, you know, those are disproportionately voters that Trump needs. And he's, you know, he's downplayed it. Although apparently he's upplayed it and downplayed it (laughs) and upplayed it. So, Abe, I'm going to write this down that on September 16th, you said that uh, Trump did well in the and 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 if if Trump wins, uh, I'm going to play this back and you're going to have a. And if if he doesn't, I'm not going to bring it. I'm not I'm not going to rub it in your face. Nothing unfair about that. I'm not going to rub it in your face because, you know, I mean, it's a it made for an interesting conversation, which is in the end, the only thing that matters here 
is that we, you know, we, 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 we are of enough interest that you are listening to this point in the podcast when I will end. Uh, Noah is off the next two days. Um, so we will miss him and see him on Monday and we'll be back tomorrow, Christine and Abe and I. So for the three of you and, uh, and me, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.